I had spent 30 years in the pro-life movement. I'd spoken on countless stages in front of thousands upon thousands of people. I had organized huge protests and clinic blockades. I was part of a national leadership group. I had preached an absolutist message. There was no excuse for, no justification for abortion under any circumstances at all. I'm Abigail Disney. Welcome to All Ears, my podcast where I get to go deep with some super smart people. This week, a special, more personal episode. All post-culture time has expired. Amy Coney Barrett just got confirmed to the Supreme Court. Mr. Graham. Mr. Grassley. A lifelong appointment. On this vote, the A's are 52. We now have an extremely conservative Supreme Court with a 6-3 to three majority. The Supreme Court of the United States is confirmed. That court will be able to shape environmental regulations, labor laws, healthcare, and so much more for decades to come. And of course, there's Roe. For the right, it's a victory that's been long in the making, which is why it's a perfect time to revisit a conversation I taped last summer with my friend Reverend Rob Schenk. Rob is an evangelical minister who spent most of his career working to outlaw abortion. I was with Mike Pence when he was in Congress, with the Republican leadership, several generations of it in Congress. And then I spent 10 years interacting with the justices of the Supreme Court, prayed with several of them, visited with them in chambers. I made the rounds. Rob was the subject of a film I made in 2015 called The Armor of Light. As you'll hear, a lot has changed for him in the last few years. On today's podcast, we're doing something a little bit different. The conversation I had with Rob back in June turned into a deeply personal dialogue for me and him, and it didn't quite fit into our usual format. We sat on it for a couple of months, and then when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, we kind of knew it was time. I've enlisted one of my producers, Alexis Pencrasi, to help me contextualize my conversation with Rob. Alexis, say hi. Hi. Hi, Abby. Hi. Okay. Later, we'll check back in with Rob to see how he's feeling this week. And so, without further ado, here's my interview with Rob Shank, helped along by Alexis. So, Abby, can you hear me okay? Yep. Okay. So, when you met Rob, what, what did you know about him going into that first meeting? Rob was a very influential figure in conservative circles, especially in Washington, D.C. He had, you know, kind of made a name for himself in Buffalo as an activist on abortion. I had read a couple of articles about him, and on the train on the way down to meet him, I watched a video of him carrying a baby at a protest, a fetus, 
And another one of him standing on the Supreme Court steps declaring marriage as between one man and one woman. I just remember hitting my head on the table in front of me thinking, what am I doing? How long ago was that? How many years ago was that first meeting? We met in June 2013, I think. So you were you were feeling nervous. What, what do you think you actually expected him to be like? I expected to him look at me and see a horrible witch that needed burning at the stake. I felt certain that he would not be a nice person. I really didn't know who I was meeting when I ventured across Capitol Hill. At the time, I was living on Capitol Hill across the street from the Supreme Court. So we sat and we talked, uh, and I was a little, no, I was a lot on edge. Yeah, so you had gone actually because you were really wanting to talk to somebody who is pro-life for the film you were making, right? Right, exactly. So I was going to see Rob because I was making a documentary about guns, and I was trying to look at it through a conservative's eyes. If every life is sacred, then what are we doing with Stand Your Ground Lost? It gives people permission to, to use violence before it becomes necessary. And I kept thinking, a genuine conservative, a real honest-to-God conservative, should object to this. And on top of it, especially people who are pro-life. Where was the Christian in the discourse? And I needed somebody genuine who would talk to me, you know, in a genuine way about the question. And and Rob ended up being that person. He was willing to engage on it. Yeah. I noticed that you and I both sat in chairs that were literally as far from each other as they could be physically in a room. Mm -hmm. (laughs) and still Mm -hmm. be in the same room, which was funny. I mean, like, the body language was terrible. But I remember I started like this. Like, we could argue. We could get right into a fight if we wanted to, right? You remember this? I do. uh, And we could choose not to do that and just see what happens. Like, what if we just chose not to do that? And uh, I guarantee you we're going to find out we're more alike than different. And I loved that proposal that you made, and it took me back, and no pun intended, disarmed me. And one of the other things I said at the time was, it's not that we're never going to talk about abortion. We're just going to wait and see if we can be enough friends to talk about it and not want to tear each other's eyes out. But but we sure put that on the back burner for a long time, right? Yeah, I can't even calculate how long it was. It was a long time, but that was good because during that time, our I, I think our mutual trust of one another deepened. Yeah. When you proposed my going on camera to examine my own religious community, white American evangelicals on the question of popular gun culture and our embrace of the Second Amendment and firearms, that sounded dangerous to me, but at the same time, it was interesting to me. And then I figured you're a pretty serious person with your professional history. Uh, I'll give it some consideration. And then I put you through an agonizingly long period of time (laughs) before I said yes. Yeah. 
The first time we met, he said, I have to think about it, and he went home. So I was pretty sure the answer was no. About once a week for five weeks, I called him, and he'd say, I don't know, I don't know. And the fifth week I called him, he said, words I will never forget. There's a big moral failing at the center of my community, and I can't pretend I don't see it. And then he said, so thanks a lot. <laughs> Sarcastically? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> In the film, you watch Rob take on the um, pro-life evangelical culture and challenge them in terms of justifying how the gun culture doesn't conflict with that. It wasn't until months later that you told me that you had been a little wobbly. You had already been questioning a little bit of the orthodoxy from your side when I met you. I was in a a period of reflecting about my own life. I had taken a leave of absence of sorts from the highly charged political work I was doing in Washington, went out west to Seattle, which is a different, <laughs> very different environment from Washington, D.C. D.C. is the most suited city in America. So I learned to dress without a tie, which was radical for me in that day. <laughs> I was looking back over a history that included some pretty painful and even very shocking moments. There were people in the movement I was helping to lead at that time who picked up guns and shot abortion providers, physicians. So that kind of shook some of my foundation. Then came other experiences. For example, my wife... Cheryl, who I've spent now 45 years with, my closest confidant, best friend, and she pushed me uh, into therapy, which was one of the best exercises of my life. And kind of not kosher with the evangelicals, right? Right, right. In my formation as an evangelical, I saw psychologists as the high priests of modern paganism, heathenism, certainly anti-faith and anti-God. You know, I love to talk about theology, and he was really smart. So when we talked about theology, there was really always a very interesting view that came out of him. We were each a little bit fascinating to the other because we were getting information that we'd always been curious about, you know. And um, and so that was, you know, just being curious about each other was, was the beginning of a friendship. That's actually the beginning of most friendships, don't you think? Yeah. And it sounds yeah. like you had a pretty natural, easy rapport from the beginning. Yeah. In the early days of, of us becoming friends... I had a little fantasy that I would change your mind. <laughs> and then I, I came to like you and respect you. So I, I had to let that go. I think that created a kind of accelerant on our friendship because once I let that go, I think we, we could trust each other even more. Yes, I can remember feeling the times when my defensiveness relaxed. And, and it felt easier to be with you. And, and it was about that time. So it had that effect on me. Mm. When you make a documentary, you go to the festival or whatever, and you stand outside and wait for the film to end, and then you go out and answer questions. 
we would just chat. We'd sit out there chatting. We started finally having that conversation about abortion. I, I remember, sure actually, did. while we were making the film, there was one moment. I remember I called you and I said, I feel how much this risk is for you. And so I need to take a risk for you. It seems only fair. And I told you that I had had an abortion when I was 21 years old. And I will never forget what you said. I said, if you want to just walk away from this whole project, which is yes. pretty scary for a filmmaker, I will totally understand. But I had an abortion when I was 21 and you were silent for a minute. And then you said, why wouldn't I want to work with you? Hmm. I was so grateful hmm. for the way you reacted to that. And then we didn't discuss it again for a really long time, for like years, right? Yeah, uh, not that I forgot it. Not that uh, I wasn't conscious of it. I was quite conscious of it. I, I wasn't courageous enough hmm. to broach it with you, but I wanted to. Hmm. But it was forcing me again to look at so much of what I believed, what I had promoted, what I had inflicted on people. Mm -hmm. I was out in front of the clinics blockading. Back then I thought I was prophetically proclaiming the truth. I was mm -hmm. actually berating very vulnerable, fragile women coming and going, people who were in terrible places in their lives. I was a menace in many ways. And, and your story, it was doing a lot of work on me. And, and it was tough, very tough. I was talking to a therapist about it, but I wasn't talking to mm. you about it until I felt courageous enough and safe enough to do that again. And, and we did talk about it. You, you really blindsided me that night because we were waiting for a screening to get out and uh, just out of the clear blue sky, as far as I was concerned, you said, I wonder if you would trust me enough to share your story of abortion. And I had never thought of it as a story before, really. I thought of it as an appointment. <laughs> um, and, uh, and so I said, of course I trust you enough. And so we ended up having this long conversation and it it was a story. It was a story. It was a story about like the whole process of who said what and where I went for my appointment and, and what the nurse was like. As I was saying it, I was hearing it for the first time myself. I had enough money. I would have survived. I would have been able to raise this kid. This was not a question of need. This was a question of I knew I didn't have the emotional wherewithal at 21 to be a good mother. That was the only thing I knew for certain. You know, I didn't have to walk by a guy like you on my way into the clinic. And uh, that would have shredded me, honestly, because I was so ambivalent and not sure I was doing the right thing. And I was doing it top secret. Nobody in my family, I didn't even tell my own sister about it. I had a long period of about a good six to eight months of PTSD. I wasn't thinking about it in those terms, in fact, I had so kind of not allowed myself to think about any of it. I had no idea why I was freaking out and having panic attacks in the middle of the night and unable to think and sleep. I didn't connect those things until many years later. I grew up in a very conservative household, Catholic church every Sunday, and I had heard about abortion strictly through my mother, my grandmother, and the church. So that was basically how I left for college. 
Did you, was it difficult for you to, I mean, did you see yourself for a long time as being pro-choice? I don't know. I, the, I would have probably described myself as pro-life, like, right up until I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. And, and, then I, and then I had to really put my heart and my mind to figuring out what it was I believed, because I just hadn't made the effort. Mm-hmm. I honestly really didn't think about it until I got pregnant. <laughs> and, and obviously from there on, I've been thinking about it pretty much constantly. Yeah. Did you fear going to hell? No, I had pretty well um, (laughs) begun to see all of that as hocus-pocus by the time I left home. Mm -hmm. Um, But I still had a strong need to be a good, capital G, good person. (laughs) Um, and, And so I did struggle a lot with whether or not I was a bad person. I, I have believed for a long time now that the fight is not between people who think um, abortion is great and people who think abortion is horrible. It's between people who think it's simple and people who know it's complicated. I had my first baby at 31, almost exactly 10 years later. And I remember thinking there, holding her in my arms, we're going to be fine. It didn't matter how much money I had. That did not absolve me of the need to be emotionally there for my kids. And I was just not going to be able to do that. So for certain, I knew I'd done the right thing. Like, that was the first time in my life. I questioned it, questioned it, questioned it. But when I held my first baby in my arms, I thought, yes, that was the right thing to do. I sat with that for a really long time. And the words are so powerful. How you described yourself in that moment of making the decision to have an abortion. You were terrified. You had forces from family, internal forces. You were at a a situation in life where you were not prepared to to have and raise a child. And and it was suddenly I saw a person in that circumstance, and I could identify with you at least in a small way, enough that I concluded, had I been in your same circumstance facing those Mm -hmm. same things, I would have made the same decision you made. That, too, was really important in my own personal evolution. I was able to get as close as possible. I'll never be able to sit in the seat you were in when you were a young woman or pregnant any time in your life. I will never experience that. But I was able to get just close enough in your telling of the story to feel something I had never felt before. And that was what it might be like to be in that situation. I remember when you said to me after we had talked about abortion and we met weeks later to talk about it, and you said, yeah, um, Yeah, no, that changed everything for me. And I said, well, you're fucked, man. (laughs) Yes, you did. It was memorable because (laughs) uh, I only learned to pronounce that word in adulthood. (laughs) (laughs) Why do I think that's bullshit? (laughs) Rob publicly came out as pro-choice in a New York Times op-ed last year 
And in various interviews, including a documentary that came out this past summer on FX called AKA Jane Roe. After a long and uh, significant career, I've come to the conclusion, number one, that the worst people in the world to introduce into the painful equation and the difficult, complicated equation of abortion are politicians and law enforcement people, that the best person is the per- to make this decision is the person who is most impacted by it, and that is a woman who is facing a pregnancy. And I had to be honest about that. And at that point, I had nothing... Well, no, I still had a few things to lose, but I had lost most of what I had. So, uh, you know, it wasn't Sorry. terribly brave, but but it was time to do it. What's the reaction been? Vitriolic from some of my old colleagues and friends. You know, there's been that. Uh, but there's been far more from people saying, first of all, thank you for being honest. Thank you for being courageous enough to change and then to talk publicly about your change. And many who said, I walked away from the church. I walked away from the gospel. I walked away from Christianity, from evangelicalism, because of the question of abortion and and how dogmatic the church is and condemnatory and all judgmental and uh, how politicized. Mm -hmm. It is. Mm-hmm. But I, few people have said in different ways, I think I can find my way back to faith now. And that's been very, very rewarding for me. So that's where we left things this summer. Now, as Trump has delivered on his promise to evangelicals to create an extremely conservative court, I think it's time to check back in with Rob. Hello. Hey. Hey, Rob. How you doing? We're doing good, all things considered. Yeah. I'm just wondering if you watched the uh, confirmation last night or the swearing in. No, actually, I didn't, but I've seen clips of it since. So what do you know about Amy Coney Barrett? Well, uh, I knew her as a superhero in the movement I identified with for 35 years, not for all all those years, because she was quite young when I started out in that movement. But over time, she emerged, and her name was invoked a lot. And, uh, you know, it leaves me kind of conflicted, because all those old emotions boot up, and yet I have very, very different feelings about mm. the whole affair today. So yeah. it, it's been hard to watch that stuff. I bet. I bet. Tell me what you know about this people of praise thing that she's supposedly aligned with from birth. What do you know about them? Well, actually, I know a lot mm. because I attended several of their meetings in the uh, early years mm-hmm. when they were just getting underway. I want to say it was the late 70s, early 80s. But I'll tell you, they were controversial 
even in the very conservative Christian world that I occupied in those years. Well, because they were known to be very controlling, very domineering over Mm. their members. Mm -hmm. I remember there was a lot of scuttlebutt about if you wanted to date someone, you had to go to the elders of the community to ask for permission. Mm. Um, That they interfered with marriages and family life that it was very imposing. Hmm. In those days, I kept company with quite a bit of what are called charismatic Catholics, which that movement is a subunit of. They even kind of felt, this is a little cultish. Wow. So she's an extremist, even by extremist standards. Yeah, certainly in the, in the margins, most of the people in mainstream pro-life, if you will, America, really wouldn't know of uh, Coney Barrett because she did occupy such a small space within even the religious world. Help me understand, situate her in terms of how pro-life she is. Oh, yeah. Well, this would be far more than anti-abortion. It would be anti-contraception. It would be, you know, big family, lots of children indicates essentially a righteous life. What about, what about um, punishments? Yeah, well, um, I can't say I know a lot about that part of it. I suspect, just based on what I do know, that uh, there's a severity there, you know, mm. The distinction between evangelicals, who are very grace and mercy oriented, generally, Mm -hmm. is a lot of talk of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. When you get into the very arch-conservative, right-wing Catholic world, it's a whole structure of rewards and punishments. Mm -hmm. And those punishments can be severe. draconian. Mm -hmm. I would hear things like, anyone who murders a child can't expect mercy. Mm. So in other words, death penalty for doctors who uh, perform abortions and maybe also for women who get them? Could be. Could be. Certainly long prison sentences, if not the death Mm -hmm. penalty. She is a curious study on that. um, Mm -hmm. Because I did know Coney Barrett in the movement days, as somebody who did hew to the Catholic line on the death penalty, held the death penalty mm. in some suspicion. Now, whether that's truly her, her, you know, position on that or not, I'm not sure. But that's what I kind of knew. And, and in fact, there were a few voices who thought, that's not good. You know, sh- she's mm-hmm. mixed up. Uh, she's right on abortion. She's wrong on the death penalty. Gets That's that funny. messy. <laughs> I mean, I was thinking at least it's consistent, right? Uh, yeah. So for the people that, that you know, was anybody uncomfortable with this process? Oh, no. Oh, no. No. Because what happened in the time I was in the movement, 
it shifted to an ends justifies the means period. Yeah. That's it. That's the ethic. In fact, I've been receiving regular messages from the old world chiding me, if not condemning mm. me, and saying, how dare you not support this? And there was no discomfort with the tap dancing going on, say, by Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell about their actions around Merrick Garland as opposed to their actions around Amy Coney Barrett? Nothing like that? No, because this is very much seen by movement eyes as a war. Mm -hmm. And in war, all right and wrong is suspended. (laughs) Nothing is off the table in war. Mm Mm-hmm. Did anybody see any worries about the uh, future of the credibility of the court? There's really no concern about that, which does surprise me. Because again, in war, power and dominance, we've literally heard those terms used. You dominate the field. That's all. That's all that matters. Yeah. You've gotten messages from people chiding you for not supporting... Um, did you ever consider coming out and supporting the, the nominee? No, not supporting. I had conflicted feelings, um, in my old world, in my old head, you'd come up with, uh, a smart, talented female jurist, uh, to take that seat. How clever, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) And as I watched Coney Barrett go through this whole process, what has been ringing in my head are the words of Antonin Scalia, her Mm -hmm. mentor, for whom she clerked, Mm -hmm. and who is said to now be uh, rejoicing in heaven over Mm -hmm. her appointment. I kind of doubt that for a number of reasons, but anyway, (laughs) never mind. But uh, I'm going to definitely tell people you said that. He said to me, to my face— with a red face himself, he said, you think this court is ever going to solve that problem? Mm -hmm. Meaning abortion. And he pointed to the courtroom where he sits on that great dais. And he said, this court is never going to fix that problem. Mm -hmm. That's your mission. You go out and change hearts and minds. I think I understand what he meant by that. The court is, is the worst entity to address Abortion and everyone involved in it, mm-hmm. every person in it. And so it's, it's been ringing in my head, and I wish mm-hmm. I had the opportunity to remind Justice mm. Coney Barrett of what yeah. her mentor said to me. I keep thinking that maybe this could be the worst thing that could happen for some of your peers, because I've seen the way they scramble about fundraising, and I know how they pump that fear emergency button whenever they need some money. Do you think this will take some of the immediacy out of the the fundraising appeals? Absolutely. No question about it. I had my fundraisers for years come in and tell me the best thing that could happen is, you know, for Hillary to be elected because we'll raise more money during her term of office than we ever will otherwise. And same is true. Same applies uh, to Coney Barrett. Although I'll tell you, the movement just may turn on her just as well. Because if she fails to perform to their expectations, it doesn't take long uh, to turn. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think they're going to wait 
10 seconds to overturn Roe. They're going to take the first chance they get. And, and I, you know, one of the things I wonder about is like, oh, she was so good at avoiding the questions and avoiding the questions and saying she didn't have an opinion. And uh, it was just brazen falseness that from a person who also touts her Christian credentials. I hope we all constantly remind ourselves of what she said and what she's doing. Yeah, yeah. Well, she sits on that bench in a deep shadow now. Yeah. And maybe, you know, there's talk now of other solutions besides the appointment of additional justices on the court, which is always an option. I mean, nine is an arbitrary number, Mm -hmm. and it's dated, quite dated. But there, you know, there's talk of other solutions. And the judiciary, you know, it's worth looking at it and modernizing it. The Supreme Court only went online a few years ago. Yeah. It, it's it's really behind the times. The whole yeah. federal judiciary is in very, very many ways. Strategically, do you think evangelicals who've, you know, gotten so far on abortion might turn to start attacking contraception? Yes. Yes, I think we've been on a trajectory towards that for a while. When I first joined the movement, there was a vocal opposition to uh, the Catholic the extreme Catholic position mm-hmm. on banning contraception. Over the years, over the decades since then, evangelicals have adopted more and more that extreme position right. and likely right. will support it if it erupts again with this court. And we have to remember, you know, now it's a majority conservative Catholic court. Yeah. Which yeah. is to say a lot. Can you can you picture some of the anti-abortion energy from your community now sort of finding purchase in other places like immigration, like gay marriage? It's already mm-hmm. already happening. In fact, all these things are conflated. Mm-hmm. So I can mm-hmm. start talking about abortion and suddenly folks on social media or in other spaces will immediately start talking about the border. Mm-hmm. And they'll start talking about uh, gun control. Right. Of course. Or yeah, confiscation yeah. now. And you kind of mm-hmm. say, how did we get here? I, I don't even mm-hmm. know how these things connect, but they do. Well, and they and do they, always lead back to one position on economics and finance and tax policy and what people should be paid too, right? It's a great point. Yeah. That's a great Point. In fact, when I've raised the nuanced arguments on everything from abortion to refugees and asylum seekers, suddenly we're in a discussion on 401ks and tax and, and, and tax rates. Right. Well, it is the thread everything seems to lead back to on the right wing. It sure feels like everything leads back there. Because if you look longitudinally at the last 50 years the most consistent field of victory has been on economic policy. Hmm. The conservative position on economics has, has only meant one thing, and that has been low taxes, no regulation, no antitrust, killing unions, paying people less. So, okay, I'm going to pivot. Uh, tell me something to be hopeful about. Maybe if we take some of the energy out of abortion, it will be maybe a little easier to dialogue. 
across the divides? Maybe it'll be easier to find common ground, perhaps? Yeah, it may be. There's going to be a lot of repair that must be done in the aftermath of this election, whichever way it comes out. Yeah. I'm hopeful that it will be the end of the Trumpian era, mm -hmm. but nothing guarantees that for sure. No. So regardless, I am seeing in my own evangelical community, I'm seeing more and more people coming to a place of doubt about this Faustian bargain, this mm. dirty deal with Donald Trump. And maybe Amy Coney Barrett's appointment to the court gives a little bit of a backdoor opportunity. Mm. Her appointment now allows Christians of conscience to walk away from this dirty deal. He exacted a very high price for it. Yeah our credibility, our integrity, our conscience, all everything. And now we have a chance to reassess and say, okay, he made good on the big promise. Now we don't owe him anything. We can walk away. I've been working with a group called Vote Common Good, and they're monitoring religiously motivated voters. And there's an indication that as many as five or six percentage points has been peeled back on evangelicals. Well, in the in the uh, critical states. That matters. That matters. Oh, that matters a lot. That matters a lot. Okay, Rob. I hope, uh, I hope next week turns out well for all of us. Um, are you hopeful? Hopeful and prayerful and working hard for it. Okay. That's the perfect combination. <laughs> I hope so. Thanks, Rob. Thank you, Abby. To learn more about Rob's political and religious evolution, be sure to check out his memoir, Costly Grace, An Evangelical Minister's Rediscovery of Faith, Hope, and Love. You can also find out more about Rob and his organization, the Dietrich Bonhoeffer Institute, at tdbi.org. And learn more about what Rob is up to with Vote Common Good at votecommongood.com. All Ears is a production of Fork Films. The show was produced by Alexis Pankrazi and Christine Schomer. Lauren Wimbush is our associate producer. Sabrina Yates is our production coordinator. Our engineer is Veronica Rodriguez. Bob Golden composed our theme music. Additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. The podcast team also includes VP of Production, Aideen Kane. Our executive producer is Kathleen Hughes. Learn more about the podcast on our website, forkfilms.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review All Ears wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.